This morning reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 through 25. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Thanks, Riley, for reading our passage this morning. Uh, welcome again. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad you're with us. And if you didn't know, we are continuing in our series in First and Second Samuel this morning in the life of David. Uh, we're nearing the end. Next week will be our last uh, sermon in the life of David, Palm Sunday, and then we will have a special Easter celebration. We're actually going to have two services on Easter Sunday, a, a 9 a.m. and an 11 a.m. service, uh, and we'll have a Good Friday service as well. Uh, out, let me actually just kind of point this out to you. We had these printed up, uh, and they're at the uh, welcome table right as you walk out into the right. 
that has our Good Friday and our Easter Sunday services. We printed these out so you could take some, and if you wanted to hand them to a neighbor, coworker, family members, and invite them to come with you on a Good Friday or a Good Friday service or one of the two Easter Sunday morning services, we'd love to have uh, people join us for those services. So Easter uh, will be a special Sunday here at Christ Central. And then right after Easter, we're going to start a new sermon series in the New Testament book of Galatians, uh, which I'm really excited to dig into. Uh, So again, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I don't know how you come into this place this morning, uh, but God does. Uh, And so I'm glad you're here. And I know he has been meeting us where we are. and He will continue to do so uh, in his word as we open it up together. Uh, So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into this passage together. Let's pray. God, I am grateful that man does not live by bread alone, but on the very words that proceed from your mouth. And so we come now, and we need you to feed us, to nourish us, to change us. By the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, would would we be changed? Lord, in particular, I pray that, uh, that you would give us insight into your heart for us, into what it looks like to be your people who cry out in prayer to you. Uh, Lord, teach us this morning. Be our instructor. Be the one who uh, changes us. Remove me, the preacher, so that Christ, you might be exalted. Thank you that you're with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a lot of different ways that uh, I could preach this passage. Some might say I could just have skipped over it. (laughs) That would have been an easier way to to not preach this passage because there's some hard things in this passage, uh, which I will address. Uh, But the main thrust of the passage really is David's sin, uh, right? It it is the the consequences of David's sin, David repenting in his sin. But I really want to zone in uh, on verses 15 to 20 on this picture of David in the midst of of prayer. In the years of ministry, I've heard people from all across the board voice frustration in prayer. Frustrated with what to pray. Frustrated with their lack of prayer. Frustrated and wondering, are their prayers even effective? If you've ever felt like prayer is a performance or a competition, I have. Maybe you've been in a, a Bible study city group, maybe even at Christ Central, some type of group setting and And then the leader says those words, now we're going to go around in a circle and each of us are going to pray. And you've had that experience where you are unable to hear and listen to other people's prayers because your mind is racing and your heart is pounding because you know it's your turn soon. And what are you going to pray? What words are you going to use? Right? You don't want to sound like an idiot. You want other people to think you're a good prayer. Right? It, can, it can feel like a performance. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're very new to the Christian faith, and, and even this morning you've been asked to close your eyes and bow your head and kind of pray out loud, and, and it kind of feels strange. It feels maybe a little bit foolish, this prayer that we're doing here at church. Well, the Old Testament book of Psalms gives us great insight into the inner prayer life of David, his actual prayers, his petitions. But this passage this morning gives us a picture of prayer as though we're onlookers, looking at this man, this king, in the midst of prayer. We see his hope in prayer, and we see his response to God in prayer. And so we're going to ask three questions this morning. What is prayer? What's the foundation of prayer? 
And how should we respond to God's answers to our prayers? Let's look first at what is prayer. That's a big question, and there's no way I can hit every aspect of that this morning, but I think our passage gives us a very basic answer in verse 16. David therefore sought God. David sought God. Three basic elements that make up prayer. A believer, communication, God. Simple, right? But it is. Prayer really is that simple. David, a man who is in relationship with God, a man who believes in God, a man who knows God, seeks. He communicates. There's a hunger and a desire to know God and express to God his feelings. And David knows God, that there is a God who is listening and who cares for him. A believer communicating with God. Prayer is that simple. And I hope in saying that it lifts some of the burden you might feel when you think about prayer. That it might give you some freedom in your own prayer life. Prayer does not have to be on your knees. Prayer doesn't have to be in a closet. Prayer does not have to be super eloquent. It doesn't have to include certain phrases and words. Prayer is not a competition between the super spiritual elites. At the same time, prayer can be on your knees. It can be in a closet. It can be as you walk around the city. It can be as you journal out your prayers in a notebook. As long as the three components are involved, a believer communicating with God. That's what David writes in Psalm 54, verse 2. Hear my prayer, O God. A believer communicating their heart, their feelings, their wants, their desires, believing that there is a God who listens. In the story, David is pouring out his feelings, expressing his great desires that God would spare his child with Bathsheba. He is fasting and making his petition known. Listen to me. You are free, and not just free, but created to be honest with God. You are free to let him know how you are feeling. You are free to ask what your heart desires. If you're angry, express your anger. If you're frustrated, tired, joyful, tell God the truth. He can handle it. Speak to God out of a place of authenticity. Tell him how you're doing and be honest about what your heart desires. There's a woman and her husband in our church who have been to me marvelous examples of this. And I've asked them if I could share, and so they've said yes. So not just, don't be surprised if I just use you as an example one day. I, I will ask you. So I've asked them. And this couple's Grace and Dan Casey. If you don't know the Casey's, you should get to know the Casey's. But five and a half years ago, Grace had her first brain surgery to address a tumor on her brain. She has been through Four more brain surgeries since then. Five surgeries in five and a half years. All the while, she's not experienced one day in the past five and a half years without severe, acute, throbbing headaches. Dan and Grace married a few years ago in the midst of Grace's surgeries. And they have been praying fervently for years for God to heal Grace. For God to relieve Grace of the pain and to take it away. And it's been hard. 
Hard to continue to hope when it feels like nothing is changing. Disheartening at times to pray fervently and grace still have severe headaches day after day. And over the past 53 days, I think, seven more days left, Dan and Grace have decided to let everyone in on their story. And it's a story of pain and hope, of faith and questioning, of joy and sadness. And Grace's words is a story that doesn't right now have a nice tidy bow to finish it off. But it's an actual, real, honest, gut-wrenching, true life story in which they are crying out for God to answer their prayers, for God to heal grace. And when they're frustrated, they express it. When they're doubting, they express it. But they are hoping and petitioning and asking God to move. And in their hope and faith in God, to be a God who hears prayers, they're asking other people to pray so boldly for things they've never been so bold to ask God for. To pour out your desires and my desires and believe we have a God who listens. That's prayer. It is a believer being human, not perfect, but honest with feelings, needs, longings, desires, and communicating with words or groans or poems or petitions and trusting that there is a God eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, who bends his ear to listen to his people. Now, I want you to feel the burden lifted when you think about praying. It is not only for the mature in faith. It is simple. Anyone who professes faith in Jesus, from someone who just became a Christian to someone who's been a Christian for a long time, can communicate honestly, honestly from their heart and know that there is a God who listens. This is prayer. Well, what's the foundation of prayer? Foundations are important. I think we'd all agree that foundations are important. A, a house without a strong foundation will be knocked down in the midst of a storm, right? Anything without a foundation will shift like the sands. So with a strong foundation, our prayer life will remain secure, whatever the storms of life may be. So the foundation of prayer, I want to say this morning, has three pillars. And, and these really are the three pillars, you, you could say, of the Christian life, but I'm going to call them the three pillars of the foundation of prayer this morning. And the first pillar is the knowledge of God. The second, knowledge of need. The third, a trust in God. Let's look first at the knowledge of God. Look at verses 7 to 8. The Lord tells David, I anointed you king over Saul. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. What God is reminding David, this is who I am, David. I am a God of grace and love. God is telling David, remember me. Remember my grace. Remember my love. This is who I am. Do not forget me. One reason I think we do not pray, or one reason I think prayer becomes boring or mundane, is that we fail to know God. And our understanding of God is too narrow and it's too shallow. I mean, the being and nature of God is like a multifaceted diamond. So many different aspects to who God is. 
He's a God of love. And we move it. And we say, he's a God of life. He's a God of beauty. He's a God of grace. He's a God of holiness. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of justice. So much to know about who our God is. And where can, we know, where can we go to get to know our God? Two books. The book of creation, to know God generally, and the book of Revelation, the Bible to know God specifically. We can go to those two places to get to know our God. And we will never in all our days come to a place where we completely figure out and know God fully. We will, for all of eternity, grow in our knowledge of God. So how could we ever become bored? How could we ever lose our sense of wonder in knowing God with this invitation to come and get to know Him and commune with Him? Rachel and I enjoy watching the new TV show, This Is Us. Anybody like This Is Us? Okay. Well, Randall in, the, in this TV show is the adopted son on the show, and he doesn't get to know his biological father, William, until later in life. And the last half of season one depicts Randall getting to know William. William had been diagnosed with stage four cancer before they even met. And Randall knows this. And like a little child, Randall is excited to get to know his biological father. He invites William into their home to live with them. And Randall's eyes and heart are filled with much amazement and wonder as he learns new things every day about his father, William. Church, we have a father in heaven who is eternal, unchanging, in his being, wisdom, justice, holiness, goodness, truth, grace, and love who longs to take up residence in our hearts and live by the Spirit within us, will we invite Him in? And if so, day by day we can, with amazement and wonder, seek to learn more and more about our Heavenly Father. Day by day, get to know Him more and more. When we begin to understand the fullness of God, we can't get bored. We'll long to communicate with him. This is the first pillar, knowing God. Here's the second pillar, knowing our need, the knowledge of need. The beginning of the passage that we read, verse 7, Nathan tells David, you're the man. David, you're guilty. And in verses 10 through 12, are the Lord telling David what the consequences of a sin will be. Verse 10, the Lord tells David, the sword will not depart from your house. And if you were to read 2 Samuel chapter 13 to 20, it's exactly just that. It is the unfolding of the consequences of David's sin. David's son, Amnon, will take David's daughter, his own sister, Tamar, and rape her. Now, wonder where Amnon learned that if you wanted a beautiful woman, you just exerted your power and took what you wanted. He learned it from his father, who took beautiful Bathsheba and raped her in 2 Samuel 11. David exerted his power and took Bathsheba. That was not consensual. And then David's other son, Absalom, will murder his very brother, Amnon. And I wonder where Absalom learned that you could exert your power and be deceptive and murder. He learned it from his father, who deceptively put Uriah in the front lines of battle to have him murdered. 
Now, maybe you're asking, man, I thought God was gracious. I thought God forgives sin. Yes and yes. He is gracious, and yes, he does. And he does so with David, and I will get there. But I have to say here that there are consequences to our sin. There are consequences. Someone decides to have one drink too many before they drive. And there's a car full of people, and while driving, the car veers off, hits a tree, killing all the passengers except the driver. God will forgive that person driving. But the passengers are still dead. And the person will probably still go to prison. A parent lashes out constantly at their child while growing up or seeks to control them with manipulation while growing up. God will forgive that parent. But the children will still probably have to go to counseling and get therapy later on in life. Sin leaves a trail of wreckage. We've all left it. And we've all experienced it. And we see it in David's life. After David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, the rest of 2 Samuel, David's life is downhill. It is downhill. But here's what I really want to say. Experiencing the consequences of sin will not necessarily drive you toward prayer. If you're primarily concerned with the consequences of sin, you'll seek to mitigate and control your life rather than pray. Prayer is founded on the pillar of our great need of God because of our great sin against Him. We must come before Him knowing our sin, broken and needy. It's what happens with David. Look at verse 13. David says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. That's all he says, but it is deep and true and contrite repentance. I have sinned against the Lord. And then God put it this way in verse 10. David, you've despised me. David realizes at this point that his deep sin is that he has despised the Lord. I said this a few weeks ago. David sinned against Bathsheba, right? Of course, he, he raped her, he impregnated her. David sinned against Uriah, right? Of course, he murdered him. But David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Catch this. David's sin problem was not that he was lustful and deceitful and a murderer. There was a deeper sin, a sin beneath the sin for David. He despised the Lord. He had contempt for the Lord. He was in a place where God was not enough. And he wanted more than God. So he acted out. The knowledge of the depth of David's sin, the sin beneath the sin, is what leads David to pray. Needy, broken, crying out to a God who listens. This is where we have to be. If we're going to be driven to prayer, we must understand the sin beneath the sin. That our sin runs deep. That the sin of drinking one too many drinks or the sin of clicking on that internet site, or the sin of being dishonest at work, or taking another drug, or cheating on a test, or gossiping about another person, is, more, is about more than just that sin. There's something deeper going on. It's there, there's a sin beneath that sin. 
And it's the sin of despising God. It's the ability to confess deep down in honesty that when you take that other drink or when you click on that internet site or when you cheat on a test or cut corners at work or gossip about other people, what you're really telling God is that, God, you're not enough. I need more than you. A deep knowledge of our sin and brokenness will cause us to be a people who cry out to a God who listens. Here's the third pillar of prayer. It's not just a knowledge of God, not just a knowledge of need. It's trusting God to be God. I've always loved verse 15 to 20 as a portrait of prayer. God tells David that his son with Bathsheba will die. Still, David seeks the Lord, prayer and fasting. Seven days, he lays prostrate, pouring out his heart, asking God to save the child. Verse 21, the servants question David, you fasted and wept when the child was alive. And verse 22 lets us know why David did so. He says, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. David says, this is why I prayed and fasted and poured my heart out to God. I know my God, and my God is a God of grace, and he might just extend grace to me. David knows that God is in the business of extending kindness and love, even when the person deserves the opposite. He knows that God will give blessings and riches, so David prays. And the servants think because David's so zealous for God to answer his prayer, that if God says no, David's going to be crushed. I don't know if you can think of a time in your life when you really, really wanted something. When there was no shadow of a doubt that if God would just give you this one thing, life would be good. And Maybe you heard a no. Maybe you're still hearing a no. Maybe you're still in question. That can be difficult, and it can be hard. And it's why the servants of David are so concerned for David. So seven days he fasted and he lay prostrate, asking God to save his child. And then verses 18 to 19, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. David was so fervent in prayer. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. The servants literally think that David might commit suicide. That his zeal and hunger for God to answer yes to his prayers are so intense that the thought of God's answer of no would crush David. Again, this reveals the deep honesty and the deep desire that David was intent on petitioning God for this child. This is what he wanted. Please, church, know that God wants to hear your prayers. You can ask him for what you want. The servants thought it would crush David, but I love his response in verses 19 to 20. It sent sent shockwaves. David said to his servants, is the child dead? David could, he could figure it out. He kind of knew what was going on. They said, he's, he's dead, David. Then David arose from the earth washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate or he feasted. How in the world could David respond like that? Why was he not crushed? 
because the foundation had been poured already in the life of David. He knows the being and the nature of God. Right? Who knows if God will be gracious? That's why he's pouring his, his request out to God. Right? He knew God's grace all along to him, that he was a shepherd boy, anointed king, defeated the giant. God gave a friend like Jonathan to him, protected him from Saul's attempts of murder. He knew God's grace. David hoped that God might give David what he didn't deserve, but instead, he said no. He said no, and then David rose and worshiped. Because David had a foundation that God is God, and he was not. That God knows what should be done, that God is in control, and his grace is still sufficient, and his mercy is still true, and he's still good even though God responded with no. That God was going to act in accordance with his good nature. See, David was trusting God to be God. How should we respond to God's answers to our prayers? How should we respond? To understand that God's love and grace allows us to ask boldly, and there will be times when we ask boldly and God says yes, But there will be times when we ask boldly and God says no. And when the no comes, can we respond like David? Can we rise and shower and shave and worship and celebrate? Even when God says no. Can we pray fervently and respond trustingly? This passage in the midst of David's sin, and even the consequences of David's sin, is chock full of grace. It's chock full of grace, and and I've got to show you where God's grace is still being poured out because I think you can read this and go, what in the world, that doesn't feel like grace, that this child still dies. Well, God should have poured out his wrath on David. That's what should have happened, but David's life is spared, and God says, you shall not die. The child of David and Bathsheba does, though, and that's painful, and it's heart-wrenching, But what's happening there, as confusing as it can be, is that there is a son of David who is a substitute in David's place. There's a son of David who's acting as a substitute in David's place. And you might say, well, that sure is unfair. Well, first, let me say that did not God strike down his son, Jesus, to be our substitute? Did Jesus not take our place as he hung on the cross bearing the weight of our sin? And let me say secondly, this child who dies isn't punished eternally in some place of non-existence. Verse 23 says, David says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And what David is saying is I will see this child again because where this child is now is face to face with God. This child is is in heaven, and David knows he soon, too, will be there. The child is experiencing the brilliance of God's presence. Now, let me say, let me say this here as a side note. For those of you who are here and you've experienced miscarriages or loss of infants, I want you to know that I believe the Bible tells us in places like this passage that children who die at early ages 
are received and welcomed into heaven because our God is a God of grace and love. Whoever you have lost, those children you will see someday soon. And this story doesn't end with the no of death. It ends with the yes of life. David comforted his wife Bathsheba, went into her, lay with her. She bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord or by the grace of the Lord. God brought life out of death. Even in their sin, even in the sin of adultery and murder, God would bring forth life by his grace in the form of a son, Solomon. Listen to this. Through the line of David, a murderer, adulterer, and the line of Bathsheba, a raped victim, would come Solomon. The name derives from the Hebrew shalom, peace. Solomon, a son of a king, a prince, would be the prince of peace for Israel. But even more than the grace of Solomon being born would be the truth that through the same line of heritage, one of sinners and sinned against, would come the Prince of Peace, Jesus. It is amazing grace, a story of life and love, not just punishment and death. See, Jesus is the one who took the curse and brings life. He's the one who gives all things to his people. That's why Hebrews 4, 16 says, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. It's by Christ and Christ alone that we come before the Father and we pour out our request to Him. It's why we end our prayers in Jesus' name. It's by His all-sufficient merit, by His power, by His righteousness, by Him and through Him. It has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with Him. And then our passage ends in verse 25 with the Lord called Solomon Jedidiah, which means the beloved of God. Beloved. In Christ, by faith in Christ, we are the beloved. Your Father in heaven's banner over you is love and grace. And knowing that you are a son and daughter of a Father who longs for you to share your heart your longings and your needs and your desires and longs for you to know that he's bending his ear to listen will drive us to be a people who pray. Why would we not want to pray and commune with our Father in heaven who longs to hear us share our hearts with him? Let's pray. God, I I ask that that you would really help us to, to know what we have been offered. God, in, in our minds, we can intellectually assent, yeah, we can pray, but God, if, if we were to be really honest and, and look at our prayer lives, my own prayer life, it's an indictment. It's an indictment on how little I uh, trust and believe and walk and commune with you and how much I really think I can control my life and uh, how bored I become with you. God, help us to never be bored with you. God, may we know that the, that the God of all the universe has offered himself to be known to us in the fullness of who we are.
Not to pretend, not to play make-believe, but to be honest. And that you long to hear our heart's desires and our prayers and our requests. So God, would you draw us to yourself? Would we not just say we're people of prayer? But would we truly be people of prayer? Because we know that we're your beloved. And we want to know more of you and more of your grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.